Welcome to Decision Space, a podcast about the decisions in games. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are talking about Carpe Diem, a board game by the great designer Stefan Feld. Brendan, what is your rating for Carpe Diem out of 10? Okay, so Board Game Geek ratings, I am going with a 6. I'll play it if I'm in the mood. I did do a slogan. Okay, in Carpe Diem, Stefan Feld blends Carcassonne with his personal design hallmarks to create a chimera uniquely his own. In doing so, he presents a spiky, Euro-style management game with near-perfect open information, nearly, that invites players to seize the day and get that bread. Oh man, that was so good. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Dude, you nailed it. That's perfect. I wanted to tell you the get the bread. I wanted to use that get the bread joke all week. All week. I was holding back. Oh, what's your rating, Jake? Uh, I'm going to give this one a 7.5 out of 10. Interesting. And I, I had two slogans I couldn't decide between. So maybe you could help me. But the first one is just Carpe Diem. More like Carpe Damn. This is a hard game. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is Carpe Diem. Steffenfeld does a chess. <laughs> Those are both so good. I I like the first one because this game punished me. I felt like I was in Steffenfeld's masochistic pain land. <laughs> All right. Well, to give the people listening some idea of what we're talking about, let's go ahead and roll our rules overview and game synopsis. Carpe Diem is a tile-laying, resource management, objective selection game that plays out in a number of shared and personal spaces across the table. In the center of the game is a wheel with seven spaces, each containing tiles that players draft by moving their meeple one space to the left or right on the wheel, and then selecting one of the tiles in that space to add to their personal district board. Tiles in Carpe Diem depict halves or parts of dwellings, landscapes, and villas that players arrange carefully on their board, always making sure that all four sides of a place tile match those it connects with, and must always place a tile adjacent to one they've already placed. By completing these tile groupings or by selecting one-off resource-granting tiles, players collect resources which they'll then trade for victory points or prestige, the game's resource that dictates turn order, during round-end scoring. This round-end scoring occurs at the end of each of Carpe Diem's four tile-placing rounds and plays out in a separate shared area of the board known as the Forum. In the Forum, objective cards depicting different resource or tile arrangement goals are collected in a grid. Players take turns placing a marker at the intersection of two of these objective cards on the grid, blocking other players from selecting the same location for the remainder of the game. They then resolve the objectives tied to the spot they claimed, fulfilling any resource or building requirements depicted on them, or lose four points if they are unable to do so. Play continues until the end of round four's forum scoring phase, at which point endgame scoring occurs. Here players' villas, which represent sprawling large tile arrangements, are scored according to their size if they're completed. Additionally, players score points based on their position on the prestige track, leftover resources, hidden objective cards, and frame achievements tied to the arrangement of buildings on their board. Carpe Diem is a very interconnected game with a number of complex and intricate rules. It's tough to capture everything in a single rules explanation, so I definitely encourage listeners who have the time to take a quick look at 
the game setup, either on BoardGameGeek or somewhere else to get a sense for what the game looks like. I think it'll really bring things together. So hopefully that synopsis gave you some idea of how to play the game. And we'll, we'll try and help uh, aid along the conversation by going into a little bit more detail in some areas as we discuss the different decision points. But before we get into those decisions, let's talk a little bit about this game as a whole, the background, and uh, what, what we really think about it. We can kind of go into more detail about those, those slogans. Sure, totally. So, oh my goodness, where to start? Carpe Diem, I couldn't, the first thing that stuck out to me about Carpe Diem is it was really tough for me to figure out when this game was published. I went in totally blind. You had suggested the game, Jake, as a, as a game for us to play. And I love Steffenfeld. I think Castles of Burgundy is incredible. But I couldn't decide if this game was from 2010 or, or something newer. I guess you know when it actually came out, right? 2018. Yeah, 2018. And it's also funny that you say it because like, this game was nominated for the Kennerspiel that year, which is you know, in my mind, the most prestigious award in board games. So it was, you know, one of the finalists for best board game of the year or best expert level board game of the year. And yet it seems like a game that completely flew under the radar, which just seems almost impossible because having that distinguished award and also uh, being designed by Stefan Feld, who's one of the biggest names in the board game hobby. Yeah, absolutely. So Stefan Feld, just to jar listeners' brains, if Castles of Burgundy, Trajan, Notre Dame, he's had published, had 33 games published since 2005. So he's really just a cornerstone, I think, of, of modern Euro design. And I wonder, Jake, if part of the reason why it flew under the radar so much is because of the game it lost out to in the counterspill that year, just wingspan was everywhere. I don't know. And also, maybe we can get into this a little bit later. But I wonder if the the theme and that's uh, betrays the game a little bit. I was going to say that's generous because I think this theme is like, why am I? Is this Rome? It doesn't even seem like Rome. Like this could be anywhere. Like I expected I saw the box. It was beautiful. There's like the there's like this beautiful white marble. The new and that's the new edition. So the the first edition. edition box didn't look like that, I think. Okay. So we've, we've been playing this a lot on yukata.de, a great site for playing board games online. And those components in that game are based on the original first edition. So for that white box game, they have updated the art assets a little bit. But even still, I mean, maybe you want to like pull up a image just to familiarize yourself with what they look like now. But yeah, I mean, even still, I mean, this game looks like just straight garbage. <laughs> yeah. It... I, th- I think maybe we should spend a little bit of time talking about just Stefan Feld okay. generally yeah. too, because that's something he's sort of known for, right? Uh, as, as being very much mechanics focused yeah. first. Um, and that works for me. Stefanfeld is probably my favorite designer. I think he's designed two of my top three favorite games of all time. And that would be uh, Castles of Burgundy, which you've already mentioned, and Bruges, mm. uh, which is another wonderful game. So in all of these games, you know, Castle of Burgundy is almost famous for how poor the design, you know, mm. the aesthetics are. And I think there is, and again, and I guess Castle of Burgundy is also a game that has a second 
printing that sort of brings it up to modern standards that, you know, games can both be fun to play and interesting and aesthetically beautiful and interesting to look at. Yeah, and in some ways, I think that the art in Castles of Burgundy works better for me. The theme in Castles of Burgundy holds together better for me than it does in Carpe Diem. In Carpe Diem, there was so much that just for, I I was like looking at these images and there were so many different places that the game told me to look that it just overwhelmed me. Um, So I I wonder if part of the reason that Stefan Feld games end up generally being aesthetically challenging for the artists to bring together and the graphic designers to bring together is because he likes to design games in so many different zones and spaces on the table. I don't know. Like I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't believe that it would have been impossible for this game to uh, okay, look good right. and be interesting. <laughs> you know, like I, I think here's my conspiracy theory. I think Steffenfeld like likes his games to look like that because then it's all about the mechanics. The mechanics. It certainly evokes that you sit down at the table to play Carpe Diem and you know you're sitting down to play a near-perfect information Euro-style management game. You absolutely, it sets the expectations perfectly. So that's a win for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it's functional, right? It's Yeah. There's no issues with the art. Totally. It's very functional. I mean, I am personally a mechanics first person that's the thing that intrigues me about games that's the first and last thing i notice Uh, so it's not a huge problem to me but that does come into my overall evaluation of the game i think in some way like even if it's subconsciously how can it not that if i'm going to be sitting with something for an hour and it's just not interesting and stimulating to look at and sit with then that that's going to hurt it even if it's ways i can't really put into concrete terms why yeah absolutely the shape of the game shapes our experience of them period there's no way to divorce it but maybe on the downside for a podcast about decisions we have been talking about the art so much at this outset just because it is a distracting element but i guess what made you choose carpe diem this week jake why why was this the game that you wanted to to bring to the forefront for this episode so i have just been playing uh carpe diem already on Yukata, as I mentioned, uh, there's a, a great implementation of it there. Um, and so one thing I do is I have like a whole bunch of asynchronous games going at any given time. And I work from home right now, as so many of us do. And it's just a really fun way to take a brain break during the day, you know, open up Yukata and I'll take my turn in three or four different games. So Carpe Diem is one of the games that I've been playing a lot on there in that capacity. I already had some familiarization with it because of that. And then I also knew that this new second, no, actually, I think this is the third edition of the game, uh, is just coming out. And so there's, I, I think, some new interest and excitement about this game as people sort of uh, are now just discovering it for the first time, perhaps because, as you mentioned, I think is a great point, when it came out, the shadow of Wingspan just loomed so large. It was just blocking out the sun. <laughs> totally. I guess, so before we, we dive into the decision space more and maybe talk about our experiences with the game. So you've been playing it a bunch. I have played it a lot in the past week, week and a half, too much. 
but I guess from the outset, would you recommend this game to someone? I think I would recommend it with caveats. First, uh, Yukata is great and all those games are legally licensed. So you don't need to feel ethically questionable about going on there and playing it. And I would recommend mm. if anything we say in this conversation has or does sound interesting to you, then like absolutely go check it out there free online. The implementation looks ugly, but it works great. Um, so definitely do that. Would I recommend going out to buy it? I think certain people will definitely find enough enjoyment out of this game to buy it, but I don't think I'm going to be adding it to my collection. So uh, it's hard to recommend that to other people. And I think it's really close for me. Uh, like I said, Stefan Feld is my favorite designer. I probably played, I mean, he's designed 30. I think I've only played like eight or nine of his games at this point. Carpe Diem for me is right in the middle. It's probably my fourth or fifth favorite that I've played, which is solid. I mean, I think it's a, it's a fun game. The last thing I'll say about it, and I think the thing that really does, and, and maybe this is why we're talking about the aesthetic so much, is like, it just seems like such a narrow miss. And I wonder mm. if it's because of that. And one thing I love about games that, especially like tiling games, is as you play the game, win or lose, by the end of it, you look down at your board and say, look at what I've built. And win or lose, I get to the end of the game of Carpe Diem, even if I've done really well, like that game uh, we played in that first one you played, I did well because you didn't, you weren't super familiar with the rule set yet. And I looked down at my board and I'm just still like, this is a bunch of garbage. <laughs> like it does not, you know, like I just, it just, you know, there's all kinds of buildings all over mm. the place. Like there's no rhyme or reason. It doesn't look like I've accomplished something exciting. And I think like in that, small moment that like misses the mark yeah so if you asked me after that first game if i would recommend someone play carpe diem i would say no <laughs> but but as i played this game it romanced me a little bit and i i've played well over a dozen games at this point and i will say that if you've played castles of burgundy and you enjoyed it and if you like tile laying games if you like constructing little personal spaces um, if you like Carcassonne, you're, you should try Carpe Diem. There's a lot that this game has to offer, but you should probably, like Jake said, play it digitally first, play it on Yukata, and play it, commit to play it three times because you won't, you're not going to enjoy your first play. And I think in some ways that has very much endeared me to the game because not many designers are willing to design games at this point where the first time you play it, you're drowning. And you have to play it two, three times to really find solid footing. And while it felt bad, by the third, fourth, fifth play, it starts to click. I still have some little issues, I think, that just make this game not the perfect game for me that I'd love to get into as we talk through some of the systems and the core decisions of the game. But it's a neat design that if you're a Steffenfeld fan, you should experience. Excellent. Let's get into the first decision point in this game, which is selecting your tile yeah so i think that the best place to start is probably that wheel tile selection mechanism that's the mechanism i i think that is the most vital to the game so at the start of the game everyone is moving left or right on a on a wheel i'm part of me wants to call it a rondelle part of me doesn't want to call it a rondelle you can pay to skip spaces 
but you're not moving just clockwise or just counterclockwise. You can move either direction, which is sort of interesting. Um, do you want to give sort of a summary of the mechanic, Jake? Sure. There is this central wheel where each person in the game will have their one meeple marker. And on your turn, you'll move it to the left or the right. I think there are seven total spaces in the wheel. And in each of those seven spaces, there are, uh, at the start of a round, four different tiles. Uh, so as the play proceeds, you move left or right and just take one of those tiles. And then that's what you're going to add to your board. Yeah, there is a little bit more to it than that, in that there is an, a resource in the game called bread. Very creative and thematic. Um <laughs> where you can pay one bread to move to any tile. I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing that it might be reasonable to add to discuss at this point in time is that Carpedium plays over the over four phases. So you end up refreshing the tiles three different times throughout the game, and there's different tiles that can come out in rounds two and three, and then round four comes from a completely different group. So that can play, I think, in our discussion of the decisions you get to make and the consequences this space has on the game, maybe we can dip into that a little bit. It's hard to talk about any of these systems individually is because they're so interconnected. Yeah. Because the first thing that I'm thinking about when I am moving my person left or right and taking a tile is the goal cards that are going to award points. I think they call it the forum. Um, so there's these forum cards that you'll get points for if you complete certain buildings and collect certain resources. So we'll talk about how that scoring works later on. But the first thing I do before I take my first move is I look at the forum. I look at all those cards and I already have to formulate a strategy of what is going to be possible to complete in this first round before anybody has made a single move. In that sense, like I think that there's a lot of strategy that comes into this choice of where you're moving your guy around um, because right, each individual movement informs subsequent movements. And I hope what you're hearing in this is why it's such a skill-intensive no-luck game. Yeah, it, it, it really is. When we say it's a game of almost perfect information, the only two things that are really obfuscated from the player are what tiles are going to come out in the future and other players' uh, personal scoring cards, which we'll get into in a bit. Um, but I think that the wheel is simultaneously pretty interesting and sort of, I don't know, it's sort of frustrating. So I, once I really sunk my teeth into the wheel, I loved that it created opportunities for, for pathing and sequencing. So just like you mentioned, Jake, looking at the scoring cards figuring out what I'm aiming for, what I think other people are going to be aiming for, adjusting as you go, and then thinking through what your two, three, four, five moves ahead could be. And I think that's where chess in your intro maybe comes in a little bit. But I will say that the bread mechanic of being able to pay a single bread jumping anywhere on the board sometimes can make the game feel too cutthroat. You can have your plan totally ripped out from under you if a player sees what's coming, which is good. It keeps everything tightly bound but it can just feel really bad and it's always easy to to do. And generally, however, it's expensive. One bread, you generally want to save your bread. Uh, bread is useful in some of the other systems. But I think that the, the way that that specific aspect of the wheel selection mechanism works 
can make this game feel mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, this game is super mean, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I would offer, I guess, a slightly different perspective. I really, I guess I like this game based on our ratings a little more than you. And I think um, this is one point where we definitely differ. I think the wheel is a near perfect kind of mechanic and, and decision point. And to me, the reason uh, Stefan Feld is such an amazing designer is because he finds a way in all of his game to take a bunch of different complicated systems that are giving you so much different information mm. and then distilling it down to something that's really easy to wrap your head around. So here you're taking so much information, all the scoring cards in the forum, all the special personal uh, goal bonus cards around your player board that we'll discuss in a second, all the different tiles that are available for you to pick up at the start of any given round. And all of that is distilled down into this one decision, which is literally left or right. And I, I love that kind of thing. Um, and I think that really sings here for me. I can definitely see how that distillation works and the, the binary choice of left or right, or do you want to spend, spend your bread? You've worked hard to earn to jump somewhere. Every once in a while, very, that's interesting. But I think for me, this mechanism makes it feel a little bit, every turn, feel a little bit samey. If you, if you graph the levels of excitement, this wheel, for me, contributes a little bit to a lot of the turns feeling so, so similar. The pacing of the game is just off, and I think the wheel for me is the central part. You're always just taking one tile, and the consequences of that tile could be huge. They're generally mostly the same. You're generally building two or three uh, sections of tiles together, trying to make pairs of these different houses or uh, farming plots or vineyards. And then sometimes you're working on a massive one in a villa. Sometimes they're just single consequence things. You're plopping down a baker, I think they're called, or, oh my goodness, what are they even called? It's so hard. A market or a fountain, just single occupying spaces. And I think that the wheel, maybe I'm being too harsh on the wheel itself, and I just wish that there was a way in which I could take multiple tiles at once, independently of building the the green buildings, which are great. I, I feel like it doesn't even matter that I don't know the names of them. Oh, definitely not. I, I was like smiling to myself, like, what is that called? Because like, I have no idea. It's just the building that gives bread. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just the green building. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and again, that goes back to the aesthetics, but like hilariously, like all the buildings look exactly the same. They just have a different color roof. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which not not colorblind friendly, that's for sure. But I guess in thinking about the decisions too, the triumph for me, I totally agree, of the wheel is how it distills. And I think that's probably a theme for Seffenfeld's designs, like you were mentioning. It, it really distills down. It works. It's a serviceable mechanic. And I'd be interested in seeing this sort of left-right wheel in a different game. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, and, and I agree with a lot of it. And two things you said in particular, I think it'd be good to bring up now because I agree. And the first is that's one of the big downsides of the game as I see it. All the games of Carpe Diem, while they're always interesting and they're always challenging, they always play out basically the same. There's not a lot of variability here from play to play. What makes it interesting to replay it and why I've played this game you know, 20 times or so well, it helps that it's online. <laughs> but the thing that I've found interesting is like there are so many moments where you're like, 
where you are learning something about the game. Mm. Like the the levels of understanding are definitely unlockable. Totally agree, Jake. I think that that's the the strongest aspect of this game is it leaves the sense of discovery open and it doesn't play its hand in terms of tricks surprises and things the players can learn in that first game or even the first three games i totally agree i can't remember what the other thing you said i agree with now (laughs) no worries i think it segues actually perfectly like you said it's really tough to discreetly talk about some of these systems maybe in the way that we did about kanagawa last week because they're so tied so i think as we move into future ones they're all going to mesh together and that's probably fine But let's pivot into tile placement. So we've taken our tiles from the wheel. In a typical turn, that's how you're going to start. You're going to move move your meeple, pick a tile, then you have to place it. And there's so much that goes into this decision. But the thing I want to say, and I've been waiting so long to say this to you, (laughs) is that I think that the way in which these tiles were designed was just mean. They're not flexible. Like there's so many tiles where you end up, if you've never played this game, you will inevitably, and Jake, you can attest this. My first game, it it was like a dumpster fire. I just didn't know what tiles were in the game. And maybe that's on me. Maybe I should have sat down, really studied the tiles, learned. No, you should not have. That is an unrealistic expectation of anyone playing a board game for the first time. I feel like making these decisions, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go down this tree. I'm going to place this tile here. I have my, my board moderately filled. This feels like I'm leaving myself open. In any other game, I'd be totally fine. And the tile that I need just doesn't exist. <laughs> And I'm just screwed. And there's nothing I can do about it. And there were some specific things that Steffenfeld did that really restricted the shape of certain things, I guess, in an interesting way. Constraints are interesting. Super interesting. But it's so, it really can feel suffocating. There's such a specific way he's asking you to do things. And when you do them, you can feel very smart. But when you don't do them, it's just brutal. I have to say that playing you in that game especially after you whipped me around in Kanagawa, I was just enjoying it so much. (laughs) Like looking at your board and just watching you make mistake after mistake. And especially because like, of course I was there in my first game. So like I know exactly what you're doing. And, you know, after the first round, I think the score was like 19 to 20 or whatever, right? It was like very close, but I'm just looking at your board. I'm like, oh, this is over. Like this is going to be a bloodbath. (laughs) I definitely felt like so my wife didn't play a lot of video games growing up and I showed her Mario Kart a few years ago and I I had this experience of like this is so great you're having fun and you're awful and I felt like me playing that first game of Carpe Diem I just thought back to that moment of like wow I feel like I don't even know how to play board games thanks Steffenfeld like it and that's it is interesting not a lot of games make you feel that way And not a lot of games give you the decision space to totally and utterly fail. And I think part of it about this game is there's so many different inputs telling you, oh, maybe you want to think about this goal. Oh, maybe you want to think about this goal. Oh, maybe you want to think about this goal. The the scoring cards that we've talked about. There's fountain cards, which are personal achievement cards that we'll get into in a bit. And then around your player board as you're placing tiles, uh, there are little markers that show you Essentially, if you build a building, a connection over one of the lines that these markers create, you'll get a certain amount of points. So you might have a marker that says, if you can build a vineyard overlapping this row, here's five points for you. And I think that those are great for the game, 
but it can be frustrating going in and not knowing where you're supposed to focus. And that's part of the game. Um, but I don't, how many interesting decisions do you think those little indicators give you, Jake, within the play space? Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Definitely not a lot of interesting decisions. I mean, I, they can be very helpful as guideposts, right? They provide information that helps you think, I want this purple, you know, field over the water because I need to place a purple field here and not a water pond. <laughs> but it doesn't really, I mean, you know, that's not, it's just information input. What they do though, that's wonderful, is provide moments of endorphin release. Mm. Because, and, and you definitely need that. Totally. They don't feel like rewards so much as like perhaps achievements in a way. I think, and that's, interesting because i completely agree i don't think in an expert game of carpe diem you're ever going to play a game where you miss one of these right they really you have to pick up these points and that's something that surpri surprised me after my first game you mean miss any of them it feels like you can only miss a couple and and still have a chance at really winning do you disagree with that i think so interesting i actually think there's a lot of different avenues to victory i mean I don't think you can win and get none of them, but you certainly don't need to get all of them. And I think you can, I've won games missing two or three for certain. Sure. I think it's the kind of game two where there's not like a set number of points um, where you always need to get this many points to win because your strategy could really be to tank what other people are doing at cost to your own score. Sure. So, you know, the, the scores could be, much lower 60 points could be a winning score or you could score as many as like 130 depending on how cutthroat players are playing which i think speaks volumes to how interactive yeah. this game is definitely now that you say it too and thinking about some of the scoring cards some of the ones that provide seven or eight for an objective and the potential to double up on them i could definitely see how you could dedicate a large portion of your board to really stockpiling resources to fulfill one of those scoring objectives double or even maybe if you're really set it up triple it and have that be enough of a payoff that you're making up for the points that you lose but they certainly guide you can't ignore them now that we're having this conversation i'm like reminded of more and more things about this game that are amazing that i'm almost like now i kind of want to like up my score like maybe this is closer to an eight but i think it one thing that's super impressive about this decision point is how often placing your tile is a really hard choice. Because mm. of how restrictive these tiles are, it's hard to describe exactly how they're designed, but it's basically going to be green grass on all the sides but one or two. And, and also you have to build adjacent out. So you have to build off one you're already connected to. So your choices are, are often pretty small, especially early in the game, right? You only have two or three different choices, but because of all the different things you're thinking about, including those uh, bonuses that go around the outside of your board, uh, even from placing that first tile, you really have to think hard about, okay, do I put this on the right side of my starting tile or the left side? And, and which way should I be orienting this? Um, and, and all of that really matters and it really makes you think where I think a lesser design, that portion of your turn, it probably 
be less of a decision on where to place it. You could just kind of put it wherever. Yeah, definitely. And the you bringing up the the fact that you have to always place the tiles adjacent to another that overlaid with the the achievements around the perimeter of the board, I think does lead to a lot of interesting decisions. I will say will say it creates turns where you might take a suboptimal tile for you. There, it it really doesn't be- belong, but you need to basically orient your your play space to allow yourself to create this like overhang that you can then slot in and set up larger points later and achieve one of those objectives and because every tile placement is so consequential it really does make your your decisions feel meaningful from the very start and i do love that about the game and the way that board ramps up and your decision space grows because of the adjacency and the consequential nature of the tiles and that they have to all match perfectly that does feel good and when you do it it's when you do it well when you learn how to play this game when you learn how to place the tiles and set up for the future it can feel great the villa tiles especially the very large ones uh most again most of the tiles in the game are either single double sometimes a three tile connection and the villa tiles can be much larger. Um, and those tiles, I think when you have a sense for how large you can push it, how ambitious you can be, Oh, finishing one of those feels fantastic. Yeah. So there's this extra uh, scoring at the end of game scoring, which basically gives you points for how big your connected villa space is. And that creates a really interesting kind of push your luck element to it because you want to keep making one villa sex segment as large as you can. But it's also, again, goes into how punishing the game can be because you can get into that fourth round and your two opponents take the a, a villa tile they don't even need on their first two turns to ensure that you can't complete yours and now you're out 20 points and definitely not winning the game. Yeah, Absolutely. One thing too that plays into that, that I sort of, if I was playing this game with a beginner in the future that I would mention, and that you as a view, as a listener, if you were going to go in and play Carpe Diem and you've never played it before, you should know that the tiles that are going to come out in the final round are all, correct me if I'm wrong, Jake, are all only single connection tiles. So for villas, you're only going to get end pieces to finish. You're never going to get sort of L-shaped ones or T-shaped ones, and the villas are definitely the most creative of shapes, but it really, the the final phase is about finishing things. It's not about expanding things, and you have to plan for that. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Yeah, that is interesting. And it's definitely not something, again, uh, to, to our conversation about Kanagawa, it's not something the game goes out of their way to tell you either, right? They're content to let you figure this stuff out on your own. And I think that's okay. Um, you know, and, and again, like there's pros and cons that it's it's really fun to learn those things. But also once you have learned those things, you can't really have a fun and competitive game between two people that aren't at similar experience levels like chess. Definitely. And that, uh, essentially the reason why that is, too, is just because of the very, very low degree of randomness in the game, right? Like randomness plays such an important role in games, bringing players of differing skill levels within competition because in a given game the randomness is going to lower the skill gap between the two players enough that it gives the the weaker player hope and in carpe diem the only randomness is really the fountain based scoring cards and i think the system for this 
is super clever. Just on the point on randomness, and then we'll go to the fountain cards. The randomness is so it's it's just not it's not the there's different kinds of randomness, and this is not the kind of randomness that balances things. It's the kind of randomness that, as you're talking about, is something that almost advantages experienced players even more because yeah. of the ability to prepare for what's potentially going to happen that new players just can't at all. Sure. So anyway, but yeah, let's talk about those fountain cards. So whenever you place, fountains are a tile that you can draft. They're a single tile. They'll never connect to any other tile. And whenever you place them, you get to take two fountain cards. And on that fountain card, you are going to be given endgame scoring points for completing an objective. But you have to pick one of them to return. So the first time you place a fountain tile, you'll get two cards. You'll pick one and you'll put the other the other one back. The next time you'll, you place a fountain tile, you'll take two more cards. You'll look at the three card fountain cards you now have in your hand and you'll pick one to return. So you have this filtering effect that I think creates very interesting decisions because there's a chance, well, there's a chance that the earliest cards you get, you're going to build into. You're not always going to do that. And it gives you a lot of flexibility. And I think this is my favorite system in the game. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, I was like, it's fun, but I don't think it's that interesting. Like, I, I, oh, I feel like the decisions on which fountain cards I want are pretty are pretty simple most of the time. Okay, I think it's because I find it as a designer just so clever. It's such a little tweak on a pretty common system of having hidden objective cards that really functionally smooths out the randomness. It means that on average, fountain cards are going to be about... When you have three fountain cards, right? They're going to be about as beneficial as when you normally have three fountain cards. It, it, it reduces the randomness overall. And I think that it's just such a clever way to add a mechanic that enriches the game, adds a little bit of hidden information, and makes it more harmonious with the design aesthetic of the game overall, or the sensibility overall. Yeah. I agree it's not the most interesting decision space, but it feels so good. Look, drawing cards is fun. Yeah. You know, it's not a decision, but I think as a gamer, a board game player, a card game player... There's no mechanic in any game that I think is more purely fun than revealing a card and seeing what it is and what you get to do with it. So I like that aspect of the game. I don't think it's too interesting from a decision standpoint. That doesn't mean it's it's not adding fun elements to it. To your point about design, I think it just is another example of a design philosophy that's true throughout this game, that every single thing you do in this game gives you a benefit but there's also some kind of hidden cost. Mm. The fountain cards, it's like, okay, because it's a hidden objective, your natural inclination is let's get them early on. Yeah. But in the early game, the very first round, and we'll move on to the scoring, the, the forum scoring cards at the end, but in that first round, it is very difficult at times to be able to complete enough of the forum cards to not get negative points. So so when you're going for a fountain, that cost is really real because you're not expanding your board and resource and gaining more resources that you're going to desperately need immediately. Towards the middle game and late game, you may not need resources as much. So fountain cards are easier to spend time to take, but then it might just not match up with what you're going for. So the randomness hurts you in that way. Definitely. And the opportunity cost that you mentioned too of taking fountain cards early it really directly if you haven't played carpe diem it really directly does affect your ability to 
get points from scoring cards on the ostensibly shared space. We'll get into why I say ostensibly, but it, it is meaningful. I do think that they increase the strategic opportunities within the game. It, it's really interesting when you end up with two fountain cards that give you the same thing and you get that uh, doubling effect. That can be really powerful. I had a game that I won by getting two early fountain cards that rewarded bakeries and then just trying to like grab bakeries to get four points for every bakery I placed felt really good. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. Why don't we pivot into the the shared scoring cards then? Yeah, I think I think the, we got to hit these because the forum, I'll say, is what makes Carpe Diem the brutal and cutthroat game that it is. So the way this works is depending on the number of people you'll put out. Uh, I just I freaking I love this mechanic. I think it is so great. So you put out different goal scoring cards. And what each of these cards says is uh, at the top, it has some requirement. And these requirements can be a number of resources. It can be complete. It can be a completed building of a certain type. It could be uh, chimneys, which the villa cards we talked about have between one, either one or two chimney on each one. And then at the bottom, it tells you what the reward is. So you put these out in a pattern and the pattern changes depending on the number of players. But at the end of each round, once everybody's gone around and taken their seven turns and cleared out all the tiles uh, from the, the circle and the depots that we were discussing at length, then you take turns based on player order, which is another kind of interesting thing where how far you move along the this they call it the a banderol track in the game we're playing on Yukata, but it's actually a prestige track in the newest version of the game, the third edition. So based on uh, prestige track order, you get to place your scoring marker between two cards. Um, so you you know you can place it between the two cards uh, vertically or horizontally, but not diagonally. And then once that spot is taken, your scoring marker stays there. So nobody else will be able to score those two cards again. Do you want to add on to there? Yeah, I think as you're trying to visualize this, it's important to know that there's a grid and cards on the inside of the grid. It, it's at most three across and at most four tall. And the cards on the inside are going to have four spaces and the cards on the outside will generally have two spaces that players can occupy. So I say that we were talking about these being shared goals, and they are, but they're only shared a couple of times. And you, the opportunity to cut people off from certain objectives matters so much. And I agree, Jake. I think this creates some of the most interesting potential decisions in the game. And this mechanic is brilliant, but it's also mean, which we could say about just about every mechanic in this game. So I'm going to stop. But again, it's so mean. You have to place a scoring tile. Uh, so if you can't complete one of the objectives because you don't have enough resources to uh, satisfy it or you don't have that building type complete, then you lose three points, which is devastating because not only obviously everyone else or not, you know, all the other players are gaining points and you are losing them. So that is a double whammy. You know, it would all, you almost think it'd be bad enough just to not be able to gain the points. But no, Steffenfeld 
is taking off the kids' gloves with this one. <laughs> and so the, the classic Steffenfeld thing of you have to move off this track to dictate your turn order, and then that turn order is then very important in the way in which you're going to be scored. So it creates this core tension between exerting your time and opportunity costs to moving up this track that takes away from your opportunity to gain resources that are going to reward you for making the decision that will allow that being higher on the track lets you make first is definitely interesting. Blocking someone from a spot can be just as devastating as losing points too, right? If you see this spot, this this has happened in a couple games with me where I've just overplayed my hand and it's so clear that I'm going for this objective and I need it and there's only one spot left and you could just lose the game. If you, if you overplay in that way, if the other player is able to block you first. But at the same time, it makes the decisions in the game so consequ- excuse me, consequential. And another aspect that I think is really interesting here, Jake, is the ability to double up or triple up on certain objectives. Yes, that, that was the other thing I wanted to add to because, yeah, you're exactly right. So if you have two of that building type shown there, then you get the rewards twice, you know, or you could even do it three times. And also, as we mentioned, bread is this interesting resource in the game that allows you to move anywhere when you're claiming your tile. It also allows you to powerfully, I should add, if you have three bread, you can exchange that as a sat- to satisfy any condition in the game, which can be worth up to, I think, seven or eight points. Uh, I think maybe seven is the max. I think there's one with eight. If you get all four of the, if you get grapes, chickens, fish, and uh, grass, okay, you you get eight <laughs> points for them. All Roman essentials. <laughs> yeah, the classic Billy blocks of society. <laughs> oh my god! You didn't even have to say. You didn't even have to say what they were. Everyone would have just known because we're talking about a game, ostensibly set in some field somewhere. Totally. Yeah, I'm so, viewer, I am so sorry. I really should, excuse me, listener, I shouldn't have even bothered. And you know there's gold too. Right. Because of course there's got to be gold. Gold is the wild resource. So that's a shocking innovation. As well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's interesting. And I think, uh, so this is super fascinating because as I, the first thing I said, it's like, I can't even talk about where you want to move your workers without first talking about this because what is showing up as goals is is just informs everything you do so it's fascinating that way but it also is interesting when you're actually making the decision of where to place because of what you said you want to block people you can overplay your hand sometimes you want to save up your resources so you can you know trip up on that big point one but if you wait until the fourth round when you have a lot of resources, then it'll be gone. So if you happen to have three bread in the second round of the game, or even first round of the game, you may just take that spot and spend it then. So it's like you want to spend your bread, obviously, to get the most points possible. But then by spending the bread, you're putting yourself at risk again, uh, in future rounds that you know, if you spend all or the most, the majority of your resources in the third round of the game, then in the final fourth round, you may find yourself once again resource poor and just hoping that you're able to scramble your way into satisfying the minimum condition on any of the easier scoring objectives that have been left over from the first round. Definitely. I, this, the theme of Carpe Diem for me really 
I think, and the only way I can get the like seize the day title to make sense is that this is a game about timing. And these scoring cards emphasize that so much because as you're saying, Jake, knowing when you can afford to wait and really build up and when you have to just jump in and score something because there's rough competition for it. That for me is where the interesting decisions live in in this in these scoring cards, really. And there is so much tension there. We've gone back to it, and the the bread, like you said too. Oh, that's the other thing I that plays into timing. Excuse me, with the scoring cards. Most of the scoring cards just give victory points. Some of them give prestige, which get converted to victory points at the end of the game. So those are great. And some of them also just give bread, which is interesting because those are better earlier in the game. But knowing in the second round, okay, is it too early? Is it too late? Can I go into the bread ones? I really need to be getting victory points. That can make interesting timing decisions as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think kind of to put a bow on on the decisions here, the more we talk about it, like the more I just think all of these decisions are so interesting, so interconnected. And just they, it just works so well together, right? You can't do, you can't move your worker without thinking about the forum cards. Uh, you can't choose your tile without thinking about the scoring at the edge of your board. You can't place tiles on your board without thinking about, you know, leaving yourself open options for other tiles to place later. Like it's all interconnected. It all makes you think. It's all interesting and delicious to dive into. Thinking about the decisions here, I'm just like reminded like, oh yeah, this game is pretty great. I think I'm going to officially move my ranking a little up. Uh, I'm going to put it, I'm going to make it, I think it's an eight for me. (laughs) Dang it, Jake, you just made me want to bump mine up. Okay, I'm going up to 6.5 and I also will say I am not upset. I still have six games of Carpe Diem open on Yukata and I'm excited (laughs) to keep playing. That's awesome. Uh, Okay, so I know we're over time, but I guess we don't really have... Uh, official standard yet if, if you have a second i want to tell you something that i think is you're going to find really interesting as a designer if you don't already okay. know this Uh oh okay what do you what do you got okay so there was like a fascinating change to this game that occurred between the first edition and the second edition did you okay. know about this already no i have no idea what you're no okay what was it okay so i just want to hear what your impression is of this so they changed the way that you move your workers. In the first edition of the game, there was a pentagram drawn between all the spaces in that circle. So instead of moving left to right, oh my god, you move diagonally across, right? There were still two options. It would be diagonally <sighs> right or diagonally left. And and so the decision space was actually exactly the same, right? Yep. It, it didn't fundamentally change the game at all. Um, and yet they decided to change that, remove that from the game, and, and you just move left to right now. Your thoughts? Best, brilliant, best decision. That's that's the best change I could ever imagine. Because why in the world should I have to sit here and puzzle out my next three turns, looking from the top part of the, the pentagram to the bottom to the top again, when I could just look left and right? Why was it ever that way? Except because it wanted it wanted to be mean, right? It was the design impetus like Stefan Feld sitting down and being like, I'm mad that everyone else is designing these easy games that are nice to their players. And I'm going to give players, I'm going to be mean to them. 
I'm going to give them hard decisions and I'm going to give them room to fail. Like, how does that end up in the game? What do you think of that change? I think it's brilliant. Why was it not that way? I think it's hilarious. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's funny too, because if you look online on like Board Game Geek, a lot of people who have the first edition, like swear by it. They're like, no, no, it's like much, much more fun. What? <laughs> I swear to God, I, I swear I've seen the I've seen those posts. So like people like it both ways, you know. There's actually a divide about which is better. I'm with you. I mean, why complicate something for the sake of of complication? But at the same time, right? We play game, you know. We play games that are puzzles for a reason. You know, we don't. We're not just satisfied playing tic tac toe or checkers, right? We want more than that. So I don't. I don't know if there is something objectively wrong with just wanting to complicate it and test your bandwidth just a little hint more yeah it's like you know it's like playing playing a game with one eye closed looking sideways or maybe like all the components just look all the same and kind of (laughs) crappy so so you can't like really thematically glom onto it you know i think we've gone full circle but yeah I, i mean it's funny i think this being our second game and the first one Kanagawa, you've mentioned at times like what a generous choice uh, the designer had made in this game, like how generous to players. Uh, and this one, you know, if you ask me like which of these two games would I rather play, sit down and play right now with like a hardcore gamer, I, w- I would probably almost always pick Carpe Diem. I still think I'm like happier to own Kanagawa in my collection because I can play it with more people in more situations. But yeah, it's funny how it's just the, the exact opposite. Like this, this game does feel challenging for the sake of, of giving people a challenge. And I think I think that's cool. Totally. Kanagawa is like this quaint, quaint grandma inviting you over for cookies. And Carpe Diem is a trainer taking you on a run. And I enjoy both those things. It's just you have to be in the mindset of this is going to be painful, but I'm going to enjoy it. And I I totally agree. I think that. As much as I joked about Steffenfeld being mean, I think that this is actually a brilliant design that gives players a lot of room to feel smart and to grow and to make connections. And it's brilliant. You should play it. I've changed my totally. mind. Yeah. Don't just play right. it if you like Castles of Burgundy. Just go play it. It's on Yukata. Do it. Since you got to leave the brain tickler last time, mine would be, I think Carpe Diem maybe is mean because it's Steffenfeld's both his simplest game to my mind that I've played and also his most interactive one. Mm. So is it Stefan Feld that's mean or is it the players themselves? Uh. You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm.